going to stand down here today, mix it up a little bit. You guys thought I was going up, right? No? Okay. How's everybody doing? Welcome, welcome. It's good to be with you guys this morning. And it is, once again, a joy to open God's Word. Um, we're going to jump back into our series in First Peter. And so, if you can get there in your Bibles, we're in chapter 3. Who here loves riddles? Who likes a good riddle? Today we're going to be looking at, I think, one of the most confounding scriptures in the entire Bible. I'm not uh, hyperbolizing. I'm not exaggerating. I'm being serious. It's a hard one. Let's let me know to warm you guys up with some, some riddles. If you look at the numbers on my face, you won't find 13 any place. What is this? Mike, you know all of these already. Come on, stop. Clock. Yeah, it's easy. The eight of us go forth, not back to protect our king from a foe's attack. Chess pawns. Correct. If you've watched Batman forever, stop answering, because this is exactly it. <laughs> Busted. Okay. You're not allowed to answer this one, okay? We're five little items on an everyday sort. You'll find us all in a tennis court. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> it is exactly, it is from Batman Forever. I'm not going to lie. There's four riddles in it. I'll give you three. No? Give up? It's vowels. A-E-I-O-U. You find us all in a tennis court. Yeah, it's not. It's good. It's not great. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways, this is a little warm-up for you guys because these are easy compared to the scripture that we have to, this morning. And so if you can get there in your Bibles, we're going to study chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. And it is what many biblical scholars call a Bible riddle, specifically verses 19 to 21. They represent some of the hardest Bible verses to interpret. As Martin Luther once said... A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. That's uh, really encouraging when you're trying to study. And Martin Luther says, I have no clue. And then Dr. Sproul says this, I will be quick to ask the apostle when I see him in glory what he meant by these very enigmatic words. He says, here are the views. And he's like, I'm, oh, we'll just have to ask him when we get there. I'm like, this is not helpful <laughs> at all. And so let's, uh, we're going to dive into it. We're going to do um, a couple of hours in the text this morning. And um, yeah, let's read through it here. It'll be up on the screen. I realize that it actually doesn't match the NIV, and I can't figure out what version it is. So I copied and pasted it from Bible Gateway, and I think I copied another translation by accident. So you will look at your Bibles, and you will say, oh, it does not match, and that's okay. So you can open your Bibles, read along as best as you can says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven 
and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And so, you know, as Christians, sometimes we get frustrated by these types of verses. And like I said, I read multiple sources and studied this scripture myself. And it's hard because you, do, you walk away without a concrete answer. And I think we like black and white things in this world, right? And so many people have, so many faithful people have interpreted God's word, this very specific passage, in a, in a number of ways. But I still think it's very profitable for us to study. And I have four reasons for us. The first reason why it's healthy is because I would say it's good. To, sometimes it's good for us to say, I don't know, right? I think it's not an unhealthy thing to say, I don't know. And in reality, there's a lot we don't know. And so sometimes we approach God's word with a, a, le- a level of arrogance. And sometimes we get these verses that kind of knock us down a little bit, and that's good and healthy for us. The second reason, I think, is sometimes it's good for us to sit and scratch our heads a little bit. God's word is like a mine, and sometimes it requires some digging and and some excavating to get to the bottom of it, right? Sometimes we get really used to just reading a verse and understanding it, but sometimes it's good to put in that mental work, that spiritual work of prayer to ask God what it means. You know, a little workout doesn't hurt every now and again, right? Number three is that verses like these remind us that we need to uh, work on our Bible literacy. And so one of the things that gets challenging is, you know, you get sometimes you get so in depth and you start looking at the words and you're on, you know, you're looking up the Greek and you're getting, you're fixating on words. You're like, what does prison mean? What does spirits mean? And sometimes we, what is it, what is the saying? You miss the forest for the trees. And so in, in, in situations like this, we were forced to, to say, what does this have to do with Peter and his letter to the the exiles, to the dispersion? You know, he's writing this letter here to encourage these people who are suffering what does prison and spirits have to do with anything? What does Noah have to do with anything? I think there's an answer, but it's sometimes worth it for us to kind of zoom out a little bit and not get so trapped on individual words and try to, you know, it's Bible literacy, right? Sometimes you're forced to look into other parts of the scriptures to help explain. Sometimes you're, you're forced to look into other sources to figure out your answer. I personally relish these opportunities because sometimes we have to deal with controversial issues and Church, I, I say this with, with all honesty. I think the church should be a place where we are able to unpack these issues. We should be able to unpack hard verses. We shouldn't get to the place where we're like, you know, that's too controversial for church. Or we shouldn't discuss that from the pulpit. If not from here, then where, right? If not from here, then where? The idea that we need to stick to only clear passages to avoid conflict, I, I frankly think is, is silly, It's silly. A church should be a place where we together can ask those hard questions and say hard things. Amen? And so I I personally would rather get into it together than have us all individually in our houses looking up something on YouTube, something online, just trying to figure out that answer. Because as you guys know, it can get tough, right? You don't know where to look. You don't know who to ask. This is where things are supposed to happen. And the reason why we go verse by verse through God's word is because sometimes you hit speed bumps like this and you got to just deal with it. So let's just dive in. I'm, I'm going to open in a word of prayer and then we will ask the spirit for help. Father God, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this morning and we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand and apply your word to our lives. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. And so... Three points. True Baptist, that's the way we do it. Has to be three, no more, no less. <laughs> and the first one is that Jesus suffered 
died and then rose from the dead to bring us to God. And he says this in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the, in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And so, like so many other times in 1 Peter, what have we noticed? Peter has this tendency of bringing us right back to the gospel, right? Over and over, he, he brings us back to the gospel. He constantly is reminding us of what the foundation is. He's constantly pushing us back to what matters, a few weeks ago, Chris walked us through 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 17, where we were encouraged not to seek revenge, right? Not to, not to repay evil with evil, not to... He taught us and encouraged us to, when we encounter hardship, to, to not fight back, basically, right? And the fact remains, as it did for the Christians back then, and again for us this morning, faithfulness to Christ in the midst of our culture comes at a price, Right? A price that we will eventually have to pay in some degree, in some amount. And so Peter, in speaking to those people, he knew what they were going through. And by the Holy Spirit, he speaks to us this morning and he says, there's a lot that you will face, but do not repay evil for evil, though you may want to. Though you may want to be petty and do things, right? When we seek to live holy lives set apart from Christ, it puts us in a place of direct tension and friction with the world around us, whether it is our morality or our desire to share the gospel with our neighbors, we are going to encounter hardship in this world. It's through many hardships that we will enter into the kingdom, right? That's what Paul, or sorry, that's what Peter was saying in Antioch in, in Acts. Peter makes his point by using two words, two key words in verse 18. He uses the word for, and he uses the word also. The version I read has also. For indicates that Jesus's sufferings are relevant to our call not to avenge. We do not seek revenge because Jesus did not seek revenge. And then Peter says that Christ also suffered. Christians can receive hope as they suffer because our Lord Jesus Christ also suffered, right? Also. It's one of those words that you look at and you're like, we should just skip that. But he's saying to us in very tangible terms, Jesus Christ also suffered. The suffering you are going through is not unique. It is part of what it means to be a Christian because our Lord endured much suffering. And then Peter goes on to say that Christ suffered. How many times? How many times? I just give you the answer right there. Once. That Christ suffered once for sins. Once. This is consistent with the rest of the scriptures. For example, Beth, you mentioned you're reading Hebrews. Hebrews is packed with the importance of Christ only suffering once. You get to Hebrews 9, and he mentions, whoever the author is mentions it four different times. I'll read three of them. Verse 12 says Christ entered once into the holy places. Verse 26 says Christ appeared once for all to put away sin. And verse 28 says Jesus was offered once to bear the sins of many. How many times? One time, right? One time. Then Peter reminds us of the holy transaction that took place. It says in the scriptures, they, his suffering as the righteous one was for the unrighteous. Who's, who's that? Who is the unrighteous? It's us. It's me. It's you, right? The reason why he did this, it says, is to bring us to God. Now, this is the gospel, right? Earlier in verse 17, Peter said, for it is better to suffer for doing good. And now in verse 18, Peter is giving us the answer to why it is better to suffer for doing good by showing what happened when Jesus suffered for when he did good. It brought us to God, right? When Jesus suffered, it accomplished great things. 
And so what Peter is doing when he's speaking to, dis- to, to the dispersion, to the exiles in Asia, is he's saying good things will also happen when you suffer. Maybe not here, maybe not immediately, but in glory you will join Jesus. Peter goes on to explain Christ's suffering and what happened after he died, and he reminds us that it's not only Jesus' death that provides hope for those who are suffering, but it's also his resurrection. Amen, church? Peter says in verse 18 that he was made alive in the spirit. The spirit that he's referring to is who? Is it, a, is it some sort of split about his spirit, his soul? I don't know if anyone here is into like dichotomy and trichotomy and all that stuff. Some people get really caught up in like his body died and then his soul was here and then his spirit was there and like make differences that way. It's not what he's talking about. I'll just say it like that. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the Holy Spirit who Paul says in Romans 8, 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So in other words, after Jesus Christ died, he was resurrected on the third day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so guys, I know that this seems like it's like, you know, grade one kindergarten stuff. But this is why we exist as a church. What hope do we have as we suffer if Christ is rotting in a, in a tomb somewhere? Right? Are we here to give up our lives for a dead God? This is not what this is about. Not even remotely close. That's not, we're not even close to that. Church, we worship a risen Lord. And the resurrection is critical to the suffering Christians because it reminds them, and likewise us this morning, that our physical death is not the end. Even if our faithfulness to Yahweh should result in physical death like it did for Jesus, we can have hope. Amen? And so, now Peter introduces the riddle that has boggled theologians all throughout history, aka the second point of today's message. And so let's look at verses 19 to 20. You're going to want to look at your Bibles. (laughs) Look at the words in your, in your Bibles. If there's, there's Bibles in the pews, it doesn't matter what version it is. But this is what he says in verse 19. He says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And so, church, I'll, I'll lay it out for you guys this morning. There are three theories about what this is about. Three kind of main categories that most of history lands on. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to walk us through the three theories. Second, I will let you know which one I kind of gravitate towards too, but it's not that, I'm not that confident. (laughs) Talking like a 52% confidence, like it's not that high because it's not that clear. And then I will zoom out and point us to one massive truth that is real regardless of what theory you hold to because I think there's something important there. When we read the text, we are introduced to at least four questions. Let's see if I can get it up on the screen. Right here. Four questions that come to our mind. The first question that pops into our minds is, where did Jesus go? Right? Second question is, who are these imprisoned spirits? Question number three, where is this prison? And number four, what did Jesus proclaim, right? You would see in history that, we, that there are many, many people who are, are faithful believers in Christ have 
answered all four of those questions in drastically different ways and have put together different, oh yeah, I don't have a slide for it, have put together different views on it. When did Jesus go? Who are these imprisoned spirits? Where is this prison? And what did Jesus proclaim? When, who, where, what? And so three theories, and I'm going to run us through all of them. I do have a slide for it. The first theory here is that Christ descended to hell to preach a message to prisoners. Who's heard that before? That Jesus went to hell. Like, that's a pretty, if you spent, like, 15 minutes in a church, you'd probably have heard that. Especially the older the church, the more likely you are to hear that. And you probably heard it um, in a reciting of the Apostles' Creed, right? In one version of this theory... We, many theologians believe that Jesus descends to hell between his death and resurrection. And some say that Jesus went to hell to preach a gospel message to sinful people during the flood. And our Catholic neighbors would say that this gospel was a second chance type of message. So they would say that Jesus descended to hell with the message of the gospel and he went to people to give them a second chance to repent and to um, believe in him. And so like I said, this theory was made popular because of the Apostles' Creed, and I'm just going to read it to you. The latest, or one, maybe the one that was revised in 1960 said, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell, and on the third day he rose from the dead. Who's heard that before? Yeah, it's like a pretty, pretty standard things. And it's not actually, I actually don't have a problem with the Apostles' Creed in any way. But it's, I have problems with how it's interpreted and how it's read. And so there's many problems with the theory that Jesus went um, to hell. And, and not only the idea that Jesus went to hell to bring the gospel, but there are people who hold to the idea that Jesus went to suffer. <laughs> you know, So he had punishment, wrath, part one on earth, and then he died and went to hell, and then it kept going. Who's heard that before? That Jesus went to hell to continue paying the price Forward. And so today I ask you a question, how many times did Jesus suffer? One time, right? And, you know, it maybe sounded like it was like a grade three question, like maybe I was insulting your intelligence, but I had a plan. It was going to come back in the message. The scriptures teach us that when Jesus was on the cross, he drank the wrath of God that was due to sinners. And when he was done, what did he say? It is finished, right? Do you guys know what that word means? What, what, that, what that stands for? Pardon me? Yeah, so when you go to, to, to Walmart or to a store and you cash out and you're not using a machine but you're talking to a real person, when you pay, everything's done, they give you your receipt, what do they say? What's the last thing they say? Have a good day, right? Like, thank you, have a good day. And really what they're saying is, our business is done, please leave, right? We have a long line, we have business to do, we have things to conduct <laughs> at this moment. The Greek word that Jesus uses is tetelestai, and it is literally a phrase that was used in the marketplace to indicate that the transaction was complete. It is finished. We have no more business. You have the good you paid for. I have the money. We can go our ways. There's no more, unless you want to buy something else, we are finished at this moment, right? And so when Jesus says this, He's not just saying a word that nobody uses. He is saying a word that was so extremely common in that society that for anyone to hear it, 
And for anyone to read it who understood the word that was being used, they would say, wow, the transaction is complete. Full payment, business is done, please leave. (laughs) There is no more reason for me to be here. And the scriptures teach us that Jesus drank every single ounce, every single drop of the wrath of God. And so for... Our, our, our neighbors who, who say that, you know, uh, Jesus, he, 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 he paid the price on the, co- on the cross and then, and then he descended to hell and then Satan tormented him there and things continued. It, it's, it's fictional. It's fictional. Rather, we hear the words of John Calvin and I, I, I really prefer the way he presents it. And all he does is he changes the order of the Apostles' Creed. And this is what he said. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified descended into hell, died, and then was buried. Calvin argued that Jesus' descent into hell was figuratively done on the cross when he was separated from his father. And that's how he reads it, and I think it's a fair and a pretty charitable way of understanding uh, the Apostles' Creed. The second problem with this is the idea that sinners are given a second chance in hell or in a holding place like purgatory. I, I think it flies in the face of Scripture I won't get into it, but if you guys recall the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, no second chance was offered, right? Mercy is something that is extended to people who are alive. When we pass from this world, that's it. That's it. So that's theory number one, and it's fairly common, and I I don't mean to, to speak negatively about it in the sense that anybody who concludes that doesn't know what they're talking about, but I have real reasons personally why I would disagree with it. The second theory is called the Noah theory, and it is that through Noah, Christ preached to the people of Noah's time. Do you guys understand that? Peter says that it was, if you guys look in 1 Peter 1.11, the spirit that inspires the prophets to speak is called the Spirit of Christ. That's what Peter says, that the Spirit, they inquired of the Spirit of Christ with the time and the place that the Messiah would come. And so there are theologians who hold the view that Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison, um, basically the, prison, the spirits in prison are people who were alive during Noah's time. And in the present day of Christ's ascension or whenever he does this, he basically because God hold, doesn't, is not bound by time, preaches the gospel through Noah retroactively. Does that make sense? It's like a, it's like a time travel type, type of thing. I don't mean to like disparage it or speak poorly of it. It's probably the second most viable option on the list. And there are many solid theologians who hold to this, actually quite aggressively, that Christ, after he uh, was made alive in the Spirit, his Spirit basically went back and preached through Noah and of course, we know they did not accept it, but it was a preaching nonetheless. And so chronologically, the theory goes like this. Jesus dies on the cross, is raised from the dead on the third day, and then in the spirit, he goes back in time and preaches through Noah to the people alive at the time. I'll be completely honest with you, and I'll say it like this. I don't 100% understand this theory. I think it's healthy to say I don't know when I don't know. I don't really understand it, though there are people I respect who really hold to this view. And so I would encourage you, as I'm sharing these things, uh, don't just take my word for it. Like, do your own work. Do your own research. I do promise you, though, that when you start to look, you will get more confused. (laughs) So this is the second theory. 
And theory number three is that Jesus preached a message to fallen angels who sinned during the days of Noah. Who's heard this theory? Who's heard of the Nephilim? Yeah, we're going to do that for like two hours. Let's go. In this theory, after Jesus is raised from the dead, and maybe before he ascends to the right hand of God, we're not really sure. We just know in the, in the scripture, the timeline is that he's made alive and then he goes. And so it could be in that time period before he ascends to the Father. I don't know. But in this theory, after Jesus is raised from the dead, Jesus goes and preaches a message of victory to demons who are now in prison in a place called Tartarus. Who's heard that word for before? Tartarus. I'm not talking about, you know, dental hygiene. <laughs> Tartarus. It's a, it's a very rare word that's used in the scriptures. Now, while it may seem like it's a fantastical argument, Peter discusses this again in 2 Peter chapter 2, and the Apostle Jude also mentioned it, mentions it in his own book as well. It seems like Peter has some fascination with Noah because he brings him back in, a, in, in his other letter. And I don't know why. I mean, I, we, we get some clues, but there's something about Noah that really stood out to Peter. And so in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is talking about false teachers. He talks about false teachers and, 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 the, and the, the promise that is made to them when they lead people astray. And he makes this promise that false teachers will reap the wrath that is due to them because of their evil actions. And so he goes, he basically says, false teachers will get what's owed to them. And then he says this in, in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept in, until the judgment. And then he goes on and he lists two more other things. He lists um, Noah, and then he lists Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's basically saying, if God didn't spare the angels, if God didn't spare the people during the days of Noah, and if God didn't spare the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, then why would he spare these, these false teachers? He's basically saying, false teachers are worse than these guys. So if these guys got it bad, can, can you imagine what will happen to a false teacher in this world, right? The word hell is used here, but it is not the same as other places in the Bible. And it is the use of the word Tartarus. In other places of the scripture, do you guys know what the word is for, 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 for hell? Hades would be the Greek word used for hell. And the Hebrew version of that? Gehenna is one use of it. Who said that? Yeah? And then what's the other one? The more common one, Shoal, under, literally means like in the ground, right? And so Hades would be the most common use. Don't fear, what is it? Fear the one who can send your, destroy your body in hell. Hades is the, would be the application of that word. But he uses the word Tartarus, which is a Greek mythology word. And is the mythological term used to refer to a special place in Hades where only the worst criminals and literal monsters are locked up, Right? So he's tapping into like, he, he's not even using Christian terms here. He's using Greek mythology. I think, there's, I think there was a god of Tartarus, right? I don't know. I'm, I think somebody in here is nerdy enough to know that. Somebody. No? Okay, that's fine. Jude 6 also adds extra fuel to the first verse because he is speaking about something really similar in Jude 6. And he says this, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Do you guys see the similarities between those three verses? Spirits imprisoned. Then you get to 2 Peter 2, and he talks about people who are 
kept in chains of gloomy darkness, and then Jude 6, he clarifies that it's actually angels, and then he uses the same words, eternal chains under gloomy darkness. It's almost the exact same words. And so the, the, the language is so similar here that it seems to point to a common idea between these three passages. The spirits mentioned in 1 Peter 3 are angels who rebel against God, and a rebellious angel we would call a demon, right? And so this leads to the next logical question. What did these angels do? Like, what was their rebellion about? The key, in, the key lies in Peter saying that these spirits are people who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, right? That's when they existed. That's when they were imprisoned. And they did something during that time that was grievous. And so theologians point to Genesis chapter 6 where we learn about the days of Noah. I'm sorry the font is a little bit small, but I'll read it for you. It says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. I wish, right? Not anymore. Verse 4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. The heroes of old men of renown. And so, I lied before. I'm not going to do two hours on this. I'm going to do a really quick list on it. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but here's my best shot at interpreting this. One solid interpretation is this story is merely about the offspring of Seth mating with the offspring of Cain, right? Because we see that the um, other parts of Genesis indicate that they are not on the same side and that they should not intermingle. That's one common theological interpretation. But another interpretation is that the sons of God in Genesis 6 here refers to angels and we may say, Jermaine, that doesn't make sense. It says sons of God. But all throughout the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, there are several, several references, many of them in the book of Job, that refer to the sons of God, and every single time it refers to angels. And so, in Second Peter, when Peter is listing the ways that God punished people, like I said before, he used three examples. We have the one here of the angels in chains, then the sinners in the flood is the second one, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so that places the event of the angels being kicked out in the time of Genesis. It's sequentially, right? There's a chronological list, right? The angels get imprisoned, Sodom and Gomorrah. What was the last one? Or sorry, the flood and then Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are like within like three chapters of each other. The second and third are both chronologically in order of what happened in Genesis. Like I said, that would have to put it in the book of Genesis but in, in, then in Jude, Jude mentions the angels in, chains in verse 6, but this is what it says in verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual impurity and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And so what many theologians see is that it says at the top there, in a similar way, and it says that the people gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And so what many theologians c conclude is that the, the sin of the angels was that of a sexual nature, right? And so now you have it placed in the book of Genesis, and you have it placed as a sexual act, right? This is what we can see. Um, still not super clear, but we're kind of cracking the code, right? 
And so, sorry, what do, we, what do we get when we combine this? We get a potential story of demons who rebel against God. And I'm not going to get into the details of whether they possess humans to do it or how they reproduce and all that stuff. I'm not, people get into those details and it can get a lot. <laughs> but some theologians say that we can end the story there and say that those angels were locked up in Tartarus where they were awaiting their final judgment. They did these things. They, 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 they slept with the daughters of, 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 of men, and they were punished for it. But there are other theologians who, theologians who take it far, and they say that the offspring of those are the Nephilim. The word Nephilim literally means giant. And can you guys remember any other stories that involve giants? What's that? David and Goliath, right? So ancient Jewish literature would say that Goliath was... A, Nephilim, that he was at the end of his, that by then the, the, the genetic pool had started to get weak, but he was still one of the guys who maintained some of that genetics, right? And so much of this is supported, and, and the, it's tough because, you know, you're, you're saying, okay, like, that's, like, that's, like, that's pretty fantastical. Like, I don't know if I can get behind that, right? But I think where it gets tricky is that a lot of this stuff comes from a, a, a non-biblical book it's a Hebrew historical book called First Enoch. Who's ever heard of that? And the first 36 chapters of First Enoch recounts the Bible character Enoch. And we see in the book of Genesis that Enoch is just taken from the world, right? They don't know what happens to him. And so Hebrew like, scholars say that Enoch wrote the book of First Enoch to basically recount what happened after he got taken from the world. And the first 36 chapters of First Enoch is him describing Tartarus, and what this, the jails look like, and why they sinned, and how it worked, and all of the... I didn't read it. It's a lot. It's like 36 chapters. It's not really worth it. Maybe it is, but we may say, okay, let's throw that away, because that's not from the scriptures, right? But then what do we do in Jude, verse 16, where he quotes the book of First Enoch, right? Jude literally quotes Enoch in the Bible, and it's one of those rare instances of people quoting non-biblical literature in the Bible. It's kind of wild, right? And so I don't think we can just say, you know, we should throw it out. I entrust that to you guys. If you guys want to explore the first 36 chapters of, of First Enoch, knock yourselves out. There's a lot there. It's like it's really graphic. Not, not like in a perverted way, but like it's like really detailed. And there's like a lot of fire and a lot of chains and so on. Anyway, so those are, the, those are the theories. Those are the three theories. We have the hell theory, the Noah theory, and the demon theory. And so you're looking at me and you're like, what's the point, man? What is the point? What do we take from all of this? Peter starts this section off by pointing to Christ who suffered once for the unrighteous and then was raised by the Holy Spirit. But then you get to the end of the section, and he, which is verse 22, and it says this. Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and empowers in submission to him. This picture of the victorious Christ is a powerful one, and Paul describes it like this in Colossians 2. It says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. If we do not believe that Jesus was preaching a second chance gospel to people who died during the flood, then the only reasonable conclusion is that Jesus was preaching a message of victory. He was doing a victory lap. He was, and this is not an image that we associate with Christ, but he was shaming them in the open to their face about their defeat. 
we see here in the text that Jesus did disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. And I will speculate, and this is just speculation, that the action of Jesus disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame is not just about his death and resurrection, but also includes some sort of victory message that he preached to their faces. I think we can conclude that Jesus went somewhere and preached something, right? And if some of these theories are lining up and it looks like maybe there were demons involved, I'll let you guys add it up, right? But the point is that the message was that of victory, And we worship a victorious Jesus who is alive. That was the point of the whole thing, right? It's not a dead Jesus whose legacy is mocking these people. It's Jesus himself who's going there with his mouth, with his face, in his body, and mocking these people to their faces. That's the image of Christ I get in this passage. Like I said, it's not easy to accept. And I would just leave it there with you and and say, guys, I don't really know. But what he does here is he uses it as a way to transition into the third part of the message, which is about baptism. And he uses the image of Noah and the other seven people who were on the ark and basically shows us that those people were saved, but the people who were in prison were not, right? The people who were alive during the days of Noah were not. Baptism is a sign that shows us How we, like Noah and his family, and unlike those spirits in prison, will be saved through the waters of destruction by the power of Christ's resurrection. Peter uses the days of Noah and how God punished a certain group of people to contrast with the people he saved, namely Noah and his seven family members. Peter reminds us that only a few people were saved through the water. To the Christians in exile and to, and to us, we are reminded that even though we are the deep minority, God has a track record of protecting and saving his people. Amen? But then Peter goes on and connects the present-day people with the people who were saved on the ark. In verse 21, Peter uses the word symbol or symbolizes, and the Greek word for that is antatipos. Who's, who here has studied any sort of English literature that uses where you would study type and antitype? Anyone? A type is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a literary device that points forward to something. You guys know how much I love the study of typology. The thing that is, that is being pointed to is called the antitype. And so I'll give you an example. The book of Romans describes Adam as a type of Christ, right? In this case, Adam is the type and Christ is the antitype. In Adam all die, in Christ all live, right? Adam is a weaker and inferior model (laughs) compared to Christ who brings life. And only through Adam came death, but through Christ comes life. And so when he uses the word that says the water symbolizes or is the antitipos, he is pointing to a time where um, Noah, who was a man of faith, spent years building an ark in faith that God would save him from the promised rains that would flood the earth. And when the water came, Noah and the seven boarded the ark with the animals and were saved, with it, like it says, through the waters. While the ancients perished in the flood of water because of their unbelief and their wickedness, the Bible teaches us that Jesus, who is our new ark, saves us from the wrath of God. In the story of Noah, we see that God rescued his people through the waters. But for those who did not lo- love Yahweh, the water represented what? What did it represent? It was his judgment, right? So I want you to keep that in your mind as you're thinking about baptism and as you're thinking about how it worked here, right? He's talking about water, 
For some people, the waters represented wrath and judgment and death, and for others, it represented the very thing that buoyed the boat that they were on, right? Can you guys remember another story where God used water to save and punish? Egypt, and what happened in the book of, in that, in that book, in that story? Yeah. So it's virtually the exact same story, right? The, Egypt, the, the, the Israelites were saved through the waters. They literally walked through, right? They literally walked through while the water collapsed on top of the heads of the Egyptians and, and, and killed them. Peter says in verse 21 that this water symbolizes Antitipo's baptism that now also saves you. Over the years, many churches have used 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 to teach something called baptismal regeneration. Have you guys heard of that? It's the doctrine that when you are baptized, you are regenerated. You're made into a new creature. And with the plainness of readings of this passage, one might easily conclude that as well. But let's pay attention. Peter says that the water of baptism is an antitype that points back to their type, which is the flood. In the case of Noah and the eight, I asked you guys this morning, what saved them? Was it the water? Was it the water that saved them? The water was not what saved them. Rather, it was the ark. The water also represented wrath to those who did not believe. This is why Peter says they were saved through water and not by water. They were saved in the midst of water. Water became the tool that God used to demonstrate that these people were already saved and that the other people were not. Noah was credited as faithful and as righteous because of the faith that he had, not because he was in the ark. Rather, Noah's faith and belief in Yahweh as his only path to salvation is what saved Noah and the seven. And it's what drove him to build the ark and it's what drove him to enter the ark. And it's what drove him to stay on the ark as he waited for the waters to subside, right? For us, it is the same. Just like Cornelius' house in Acts 10, we are saved by grace through faith. We are reborn, and then we are called to, like Peter says in verse 21, to make a pledge of a clear conscience to God. We show we are saved and show our allegiance to Jesus when we get baptized. When Peter says to the dispersion that baptism now saves you, he means it in the same way that water saved Noah and his family. In the same way that the water buoyed the ark, our baptism buoys our faith in Christ's resurrection. That is why we emerge from the water to symbolize our resurrection in Christ. Amen? Water baptism does not save us. In the same way that the water didn't save the aid in the ark, Noah's salvation that came by grace through faith in Yahweh is what drove him to build and board. And in the same way our faith in Jesus drives us to be baptized, not because it offers us salvation, but because it creates an opportunity for us to demonstrate what saving faith looks like. Saved people get baptized, amen? And so church, what is the point of this entire sermon? I know I've been going for a while. I just want to wrap it up this morning. Peter is reminding us that Christ also suffered, but he also suffered for a reason. But that that suffering doesn't just end at suffering. It also brings us to our resurrection, right? That's the first point. Second point is that Peter is reminding us that Christ visited a group of people in the spirit and proclaimed his victory over death, right? He did a victory tour. He went to their faces and said, I'm, I'm alive. You guys are in jail. I'm not. I put you there. And I'm going to come back one day and it'll finish, it will end it off. And the third point is that we can either be rebellious like the people who deny Noah and the voice of the Holy Spirit or we can be like Noah and the seven who put their faith in Yahweh who will deliver us to our dry land and our promised land. And so, so to close, I want to 
I want to leave you with this verse here from Exodus 14, verse 13. And this is what God told Moses to say to the Israelites. I want to leave you with this because I really believe it's extremely relevant because it demonstrates to us what it really means to be a Christ follower. This is what it says. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you will see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Amen? That, that verse, when I read it today, I was like, this is, this is it. This is what it means to follow Jesus. The Lord is bringing us to our promised land, and he'll bring us there. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this word that you've given to us. And God, we know that there are mysteries that we will never wrap our heads around. And so we submit to you in humility. God, we know that many people have tried and have, have attempted to interpret your word. I just pray that we would take something from it this morning, that we would see your son Jesus' victory over death. We would see the, the way that you've made for us uh, through Christ and the salvation that you offer to us this morning. I pray that we would not be like the people who heard and, and knew that your wrath was coming and ignored it, but instead we would be people who say, God save me, and that you would allow us to board the ark, so to speak. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.